most of us think we are uh, quite good at our jobs. Um, most of us think that we're better than most of our colleagues at doing our jobs. Uh, this seems to be a hardwired tendency that is probably a useful characteristic in some ways, uh, but it causes real problems for managers who would like to differentiate pay. Uh, and, and this is a long-standing finding that uh, as soon as you introduce a metric that you think has kind of captured performance in a particular job, um, workers uh, will uh, try to game that metric. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. What determines your salary? Well, many Americans would tell you that it comes down to how good you are at your job. Jake Rosenfeld knows this because he asked them. In a survey conducted by the Washington University sociology professor, 85% of full-time workers said individual performance was an important basis for their pay. But Rosenfeld says there's a problem with that consensus. Namely, it's just not true. And the many factors that actually determine how much you're paid is the subject of his fascinating new book. It's called You're Paid What You're Worth and Other Myths of the Modern Economy. And joining us today to talk about it is Jake Rosenfeld. Jake, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. So, Jake, you surveyed people about their compensation, not how much they make, but why they make it. What were you hoping to get to the bottom of there? Yeah. So for years now, I've just been fascinated by the question of pay determination. What determines that number on our paycheck? And so I kind of scouted around to see what other researchers had found when asking workers about what they think uh, determines um, their pay. And there wasn't much out there. So I surveyed about 1,100 uh, U.S. workers, uh, listed a number of potential factors. Uh, and as you mentioned, nothing outranks individual performance in workers' accounts of why they get paid what they do. Hmm. And as you dug into this, you found that Americans think that that's a good standard. We should be paid for our performance. But but you write that's basically impossible. Why is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, most of us are not based on our individual performance. The fraction that is has actually declined over time. Uh, and we're wrong for any number of reasons, which explains partly the length of the book. But um, <laughs> a, a, a couple do stand out. Um, one of which is definitional disputes. Um, you know, disagreements about what we think we should be measuring in terms of performance in the first place. And these things royal occupation after occupation. Uh, take, take yours. Some journalists, for instance, would say that the true purpose of journalism is to produce award-winning investigations. Others in the industry prioritize revenue generation. Uh, I'm sure that's not news. Uh, and in my own field, uh, higher education, some professors prioritize teaching, while others believe a university uh, will rise or fall on its research. In other words, these kind of disputes often stem from disagreements about what uh, an organization's product should be. And if we disagree about that, we'll disagree about each worker's individual contribution to it. Hmm. You know, I really enjoyed so much of this book, but one of the chapters I liked best is you talked about all the ways that people have tried to measure performance and then workers figure out how to manipulate it. Um, you actually had a great quote in here from someone named Donald Campbell. He said, the more any quantitative social indicator is used for social decision making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it is intended to monitor. It sounds like in some cases you think you'll maybe pay journalists for how many people read their work. At that point, they start just trying to go for those clicks and, and end up doing really lousy work. That's right. 
and, and this is a long-standing finding that uh, as soon as you introduce a metric that you think has kind of captured performance in a particular job, um, workers uh, will uh, try to game that metric. Uh, and we see that, uh, you know, in recent kind of controversies in teaching. Uh, we see it in kind of policing. Um, and, it, it, I mean, it comes down to the fact that in many jobs today's, today, it's very difficult to measure performance, even in those jobs in which there's a widely agreed upon um, idea of what we should be measuring. Hmm. Uh, and uh, even in those occupations, we see that actually, you know, nailing down a kind of objective, quantifiable indicator of performance just raises all sorts of complications and, in some cases, uh, outright cheating. <laughs> so one of the things your book gets into at great length is these huge salary gains seen by CEOs. And they would certainly argue that this is tied to their individual performance. Um, as you looked into this, is that the case, that the guy at the top, at least, maybe that's something that can be measured and compensated accordingly? Uh, I would say no. Uh, the relationship between um, CEO performance and pay uh, has just exploded uh, in recent decades. So going back, you know, about half a century, uh, CEOs out-earned average workers by a ratio of something like 20 to 1. Uh, hmm. And now we're in the multiple hundreds to 1. Um, and yet you're absolutely right that I'm sure if surveyed, a lot of CEOs would say, well, my performance has just gotten that many times better uh, than my predecessor. There's not very good evidence that that's actually true. Uh, there is good evidence that CEO compensation dynamics are subject to a kind of range of very human factors. Um, uh, that have helped uh, boost their pay relative to everyone else. And one of it is that um, the people who determine CEO pay are oftentimes fellow executive class members, and they want to make sure that everyone's pay is rising so that they'll be rewarded next time uh, their compensation comes up for discussion. <laughs> so, so much of this, we want to think it comes down to just our individual performance. So much of it comes down to kind of a low-level corruption. Uh, in some cases, yes. Uh, in many cases, it uh, has to do with um, longstanding power dynamics. Who has more say in your organization? Uh, has to do with um, issues of inertia. You know, some some people get paid what they're paid because that's just what the organization's been paying that position for a long time. Uh, and there are a range of other kind of more social factors that play a large role in our pay that we oftentimes overlook. One of the factors that you dig into in this book is is the idea of equity. Equity, demands for equity. Tell me how that plays out when it comes to wages. Yeah, so fairness concerns come in various forms. Uh, one of the kind of most interesting and um, that I came across is the kind of longstanding finding that most of us think we are uh, quite good at our jobs. Um, most of us think that we're better than most of our colleagues at doing our jobs. Uh, this seems to be a hardwired tendency that is probably a useful characteristic in some ways. You know, self-esteem has a lot of positive benefits. <laughs> uh, but it causes real problems for managers who would like to differentiate pay based on any measure of individual performance because such a move would upset many workers who who believe incorrectly or not uh, that they are more productive than their peers. <laughs> so we all think we're better than average. Uh, if you start paying just a couple people for doing better than the rest, it, it 
it forces us to confront that question. Exactly. You immediately have issues of um, morale problems. Uh, it, and we have good evidence that that happens. This brings to mind a company that you wrote about a bit in this book that was in the news a couple years back. I think we were all kind of riveted by this story. Um, this company is called Gravity in Seattle, and they instituted a minimum salary of $75,000 for everybody who works there. And they got good press over this. It sounded like such a good idea. But as you get into in this book, they ended up getting pushback from their own workers. They did. Some of their workers were upset. Uh, and so this is um, this is a company led by this very charismatic CEO, Dan Price. Uh, and he uh, made the move uh, to institute a wage floor um, or a salary floor of $75,000 to account for the fact that um, Seattle, a wonderful city, used to live there, um, but uh, increasingly unlivable in terms of rising cost of living. Uh, and so this, was, this garnered him a lot of positive press. Um, but some of his especially upper-level workers were upset because they felt like that uh, violated um, a kind of fairness concern over the notion that, hey, I've been here for a while, I started off at a lower level, and now all these workers who just showed up and I have to train are making uh, much more than I did when I started. Hmm. So this kind of leads into another issue that your book really grapples with that I found so interesting, and that is the issue of pay transparency. So many of us think of our salary as something that's a closely guarded secret. I was surprised to learn that that's not necessarily the case elsewhere in the world. Norway was particularly a huge surprise for me. Tell me how it works there. Uh, sure. So, yeah, other countries don't have such a taboo surrounding financial information, including uh, compensation. And anytime I mention this to live audiences, you can just hear um, shutters go uh, throughout. Um, uh, in Norway, and this goes way back, well over a century, any citizen can look up the tax returns of any fellow Norwegian. Uh, wow. And starting in, early, I think, 2001, you can do this online if you're a Norwegian citizen. Uh, the practice became so popular and the web traffic so hard to manage that more recently, I think in 2014 or so, the government tweaked the rules so that anyone whose tax returns you look up would be notified uh, that you look them up. Ooh, but the information, <laughs> Exactly. But the information is still available and still widely used. Uh, and it, I think, speaks to the kind of variability we see um, in kind of our the taboo, the you know, uh, uncomfortable feelings we have when discussing pay information, we just see that they don't exist everywhere. And yet in the U.S., um, there are some people where their pay is public, and those are people who work in some way for the government. If they're in a tax taxpayer-funded job, that is technically a public record. Um, you looked at the impact of that on how pay sorts out. You found that was actually a net good thing. How so? Certainly in terms of restraining inequality, uh, there's an emerging body of work that suggests that pay transparency uh, is important. Um, I think it comes down to a simple fact that um, uh, if you are being discriminated against or if you're just simply making less than uh, your colleagues who perform the similar job for any number of reasons, um, you're not going to complain if you have no way of finding out that information. Hmm. And so in, say, public sector workplaces, other more transparent workplaces, we tend to see more compressed pay. Uh, and less inequality within those organizations um, because workers can all check on what one another's making uh, and um, are able to kind of equalize pay in that way. 
And, and there was some movement to say this is something that, that should come to the private sector as well, not to make this findable online for anybody who wants to search, right. but to say this, this actually promotes some good values here. How does that stand in, in terms of those efforts um, to not make salaries such secrets in the U.S.? It's a great question. There's still a lot we don't know, but there's been a lot of legislative movement in recent years to kind of crack down on employers who have who institute a pay secrecy rule of some sort. These are rules that either bar or discourage workers from discussing pay with one another. Um, these rules we found, a team of us have found in recent surveys, haven't proven that effective. Hmm. Still today, about half of all workers and the majority of private sector workers are subject to a pay secrecy rule um, of some sort. Uh, and that, that could be for a number of reasons, the discrepancy between what's actually legal and what uh, employers are doing. And one, of, one reason we think is this enduring social norm against discussing wages and salaries. People don't want to talk about it, even if they have the right to do so. Yeah. Uh, we asked workers who were subject to what I would think of as kind of an infringement of your free speech rights at work, um, whether they support the policy. And the majority of those workers subject to a pay secrecy rule uh, do support it. Um, and, you know, uh, in general, we are very reluctant to discuss pay uh, and get pretty anxious when the topic comes up. I, I'm no exception. I study this stuff for a living, and it still makes me nervous talking about it. Um, but not talking about it does have consequences, uh, namely the inability to discover whether you're paid less than your peers. We're talking today to Jake Rosenfeld. He's a sociology professor at Washington University. He's also the author of You're Paid What You're Worth and Other Myths of the Modern Economy. Um, so much interesting stuff in this book. I just, man, I was highlighting every other sentence in here. Um, Jake, you had a statistic in this book that from 1979 to 2018, real median annual earnings for men actually declined, declined by 2%. seems like for so many Americans, the good jobs are gone. What's driving that? Uh, it's a great question. There are a number of underlying factors. Uh, I have a previous book about the kind of collapse of organized labor in the country that I think plays a big role in the, uh, in the trend you just described. Uh, what we've seen more recently is um, what academics term workplace fissuring. Uh, and what this means is that in more and more companies, the employment relationship has fractured, uh, often shifted to subcontractors, staffing firms, or as we see in the kind of gig economy, to independent contractors who are often independent in name only. Hmm. Uh, and this fracturing, um, well, solves a lot of issues, solves a lot of problems for employers. Um, and one of which is their ability to hold down pay. Uh, it's very hard to justify enormous pay differentials when everyone is getting paid by the same employer. That raises fairness concerns. Uh, and it's much easier when you simply wash your hands of that obligation and can say, hey, those employees don't technically work for us. It's not our problem what they get paid. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we see this phenomenon everywhere. Um, if you get vaccinated, take your family on a, a nice road trip this spring or summer, check into a Holiday Inn. Chances are the person at the check-in desk does not technically work for Holiday Inn, uh, regardless of the uniform. Uh, same with the cleaning staff. Um, over half of Google employees today don't technically work for Google. So it's spread and spread throughout occupation after occupation and goes a long way to, explore, uh, to explaining why wages have been so stagnant for so many for so long. Hmm. It's interesting to read about that, you know, the good manufacturing jobs that our presidential candidates are always obsessed with talking about. This has impacted them, too, in that some of these jobs where you're making a car, you used to work for Toyota. Now you might not necessarily be a Toyota employee. You might be working for a subcontractor. How does that work? 
Yep, uh, we saw this really explode in the 80s and 90s, continues to this day, where temp agencies uh, are just omnipresent in many of our core manufacturing industries and other kind of staffing firms, uh, so that you will be working side by side at a factory or uh, kind of plants factory, auto factory, um, with core company employees, but you're making one half to maybe two thirds of what they are, and you're not eligible for any of the benefits of what they receive. Uh, employers realized that this was a real way to hold down um, labor costs and it and it's just taken off um, and and you know uh, I think again explains a lot of what's made what we used to think of as those good jobs gone pretty bad. So Jake, much as I enjoyed this book, I also found big parts of it deeply depressing. And and what you're talking about just now is a great example of that. It, it seems like we have figured out ways to just eke every little dime of profit out of some of these companies. And that involves just paying people terrible wages, not giving them the benefits they used to get. Is there a way to reverse course in some of these directions that you're describing? Yeah, I think there's a set of recommendations I do end the book on. Um, uh, the depressing stuff does occupy a large fraction of it. But uh, we've seen some movement in recent years, uh, movements that I would not have anticipated if you had asked me, say, a decade ago or kind of earlier when I started thinking about these issues. Um, the Fight for 15 movement, um, which has spread um, to kind of um, state house after state house at the city level, um, has has proven, you know, has um, delivered real dividends for millions of low-wage workers who are now enjoying an increase in their minimum wage. Obviously, in Missouri, <laughs> it's still a bit up in the air, as your prior segment made clear. Um, but that is on the uh, on the agenda right now uh, at the federal level to finally update the, final, the federal minimum wage. That's a way of kind of um, increasing, raising the floor. Um, there are other strategies to expand the middle, to expand the middle class. And um, some of them, uh, I think, you know, um, are more likely than others. Uh, there have been efforts uh, at the tail end of the Obama years. There's a real effort to crack, crack down on workplace fissuring, fissuring in, the, uh, in the sort of kind of um, not allowing employers to misclassify workers as independent contractors, as temp workers and the like, make them have to, you know, make employers have to employ them uh, as part of the lead firm and give them the benefits and um, uh, and salaries that everyone employed by the lead firm is, uh, uh, enjoys. Uh, that, again, is on the agenda. Uh, you know, I can't predict the future, but it's these are things being talked about in a way that we haven't in a long time, and I think that's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there, um, there just has to be ways to lower the ceiling. Runaway executive compensation, compensation at the very top of the distribution is just a key dynamic of our economy in recent decades. There we've seen much less progress, uh, mm -hmm. and the pushback has been pretty ferocious. So we might find ways to increase what people at the bottom are paying, but the idea on trying to get those top wages under control, it seems like you're not quite so hopeful on that. I'm not as optimistic. I think we're earlier in that debate. Um, I think it's long overdue, uh, and we are making progress on the kind of bottom and middle uh, of our um, kind of economic ladder. The top um, is it's, it raises thornier set of concerns, and you know, obviously, p political power and economic power are interrelated, and uh, that's just one of the roadblocks we faced. Hmm. So, Jake, in our final couple minutes here, I did want to mention something, and that is the afterword of this book was was so fascinating. You mentioned in it that you sent your draft to your publisher on February 28th, 2020. Were you freaking out in the next few months thinking, oh my goodness, the whole world has changed overnight. All of this research could well be obsolete. 
Yes, among many things I was freaking out about <laughs> during that period. <laughs> you had good cause right there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But that now was, that we're kind of, that I don't want to say coming list. out of this pandemic, <laughs> but we now have a, a better sense of, of what the pandemic has wrought. Um, right. How does it change what you wrote about in this book? Yeah, I think, um, um, I think especially in those early months when we were all cheering on um, what we termed the essential workforce, uh, when we were all kind of paying attention to the fact that while some of us had the luxury of staying at home, working from home, staying safe, others had no such luxury, whether they're healthcare workers, um, home health aides, nurses assistants, food deliverers and the like. And so um, we just, you know, there was a kind of national conversation around that. Uh, and what I wanted to make clear, and I, and I do have to thank the publisher for allowing me to append that um, <laughs> afterward in there, make clear is that um, we, it's not just about validation and symbolic gestures. You, we should start paying them uh, what they deserve as well. And I think the pandemic kind of cast those issues in a really stark relief that the people uh, who kept us fed, uh, kept us uh, healthy and safe, often were some of the same people who have just seen their job conditions erode uh, uh, dramatically in recent decades. Mm -hmm. So, Jake, last question here today. If hearing this, we feel like we care about these issues and we want to solve some of these issues of inequality, what's one thing that the average person can do if they're not in charge of CEO pay setting? Um, <laughs> what is What is one thing we could do right now? <laughs> Yeah, um, boy, one thing. So on the one hand, there's a set of workplace rights that workers have that they clearly don't seem to think don't seem to recognize, uh, and that that um, that that includes your ability to discuss wages and salaries with your fellow colleagues. Hmm. Uh, in most workplaces today that have a rule against this uh, uh, against this behavior, those rules are simply illegal. Uh, and that you know, opening up those discussions, uh, and there's actually some good evidence that younger workers are much more likely to simply break these rules and ask about pay and discuss pay, is one way of kind of equalizing pay within workplaces. At a broader level, there are a number of really important uh, pieces of legislation being debated right now um, that I think uh, calls to your elected officials could help kind of move the needle on. That includes federal minimum wage issues. It includes um, a big piece of legislation called the PRO Act, which would rebalance the playing field between employers and organized labor in a really kind of key way. And these issues are um, live in a way that they just haven't been in my working career. And so all that's really encouraging. And that's, I think, those are a couple of strategies for your average uh, person concerned about them to take. Well, Jake Rosenfeld, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing about this uh, really interesting book. Oh, thank you so much. And that book, again, is You're Paid What You're Worth and Other Myths of the Modern Economy. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.